The scripture reading today is Matthew 26, 57 through 68. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophecy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Greetings from Jerusalem, Shalom. It has been brought to my attention that there has been an incident that should be addressed. I have been asked by your leaders and law-abiding personnel to help understand our situation. No one questioned the good he did for the poor or that he inspired the masses. This person that caused this great commotion, actually I'm kind of jealous. My problem with him is first and foremost is that he healed on the Sabbath. The law of God forbids that. That is the law of God. Now, the Roman law, they could care less. They, of course, whether it's on the Sabbath or not, as long as we don't cause them much trouble. Now, that is the other thing to be clear, my position. My my position is a very delicate 
one. You must understand. And there's nothing to stop the Romans from marching in and just wiping us out. Well, nothing except my ability to keep the peace. My father-in-law was removed from his position as high priest because he was not able to keep the peace. I plan to do better. So, this man from somewhere out there in Galilee, he uh, becomes very popular. So we, my counsel and I, go to him. We ask him questions. He dances around our requests. He won't answer to us directly. He, he calls us whitewashed tombs, dead inside. Then he brings his troops into the city for Passover. Now he becomes my problem. His followers call him king. He flips over tables in the temple, and this is the sort of insurrectionist behavior that Rome will come in and crush our heads. That man, he does not understand the ways of behavior in our city. Oh, and let me be clear, this is not pride. No, no, I am a priest. There is no pride here. This is about the people of God being obedient to God. It's not pride. But I shouldn't expect him to understand that, this raving lunatic. The things that he has said, (laughs) I mean, the only thing that it would be, make possible is that he would be the son of God or the Messiah. No. (laughs) I'm I'm so sorry. I, 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 uh, can't even imagine that I said that, but no, this man is no Messiah. He is no king. So, just to allow your knowledge to be informed, we made arrangements, my, my counsel and I, to convict him, prove his guilt because Working on the Sabbath is a capital offense. Only Rome doesn't like us handling capital offenses. The punishment in the old days of Aaron were, well, we would just have them stoned. But to keep the peace, we hand him over to Rome. This blasphemous insurrectionist. Pilate appreciates how we deal with things. We keep the peace. convicted. The trial of all centuries. This Lent, our sermon series, 
is focusing on the trial of Jesus. So essential to the narrative story of Jesus' life and ministry, and indeed his death and ultimate resurrection. And yet, in the history of the Christian church, especially its expression in worship, oftentimes the trial of Jesus is observed and the texts from the Gospels read during a very brief period of time, often just on Good Friday. What we're doing basically this year in Lent is we are expanding Good Friday into really all of the Lenten season to give us some time to reflect on Jesus' trial that led to his conviction and his death. But also, we will be tracing the narrative storyline and considering the inner convictions of the characters who Jesus encounters on his way to and through his trials in Jerusalem. And it is there that we will be called upon to consider our own convictions about Jesus Christ. Well, in the gospel texts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the passion narratives, that is the narratives about Jesus' suffering and death, are very considerable, especially in relation to other aspects of his ministry. And in fact, in John's gospel, nearly one half the entire gospel is passion narrative. What you see in the Passion Narrative, it starts really with the activities around Jesus' Last Supper and then continues on through his arrest, his trials. And what we will find as we continue uh, through Lent this year is that Jesus has two trials. First, a Jewish trial, then a Roman trial, and then he is convicted and sentenced to die on a cross. And that is what happens. And the gospel writers give an account of this. And then comes Easter. But we're not there yet. There is some variation among the gospels. What is really kind of interesting, if you think back to Christmas time, the story of Jesus' birth, there are two gospels, two of the four have a narrative or a story about Jesus' birth. And so you kind of have to go through the, the different, uh, what this gospel says versus what that gospel says. Some of you know that, that like the three kings or the magi, that is in Matthew but not in Luke. And Luke emphasizes Jesus' birth uh, in Bethlehem and the shepherds, for instance, and the angel announcement, which does not happen in Matthew. Uh, but you put those things together and you have Christmas, right? Well, You have Holy Week and Easter if you put all the different passion narratives together. And there is significant, at least to take notice of, differences among the Gospels. But it's remarkable how consistent the narrative is. And how, for instance, this trial that we're focusing on today, this religious trial of the Sanhedrin how it is testified to in all four of the Gospels. But as we go through this trial narrative of Jesus, we will see storylines woven in like a tapestry. And these are sub-themes. 
Some might even consider these to be counter-narratives, or at least co-narratives, narratives that are important. See, there's more than just a trial going on here. Jesus is finally encountering the powers of his day. We follow Jesus along the Gospels, the Gospel route from Galilee now into Jerusalem. And now Jesus is front and center with this text today from Matthew, finally at a moment of reckoning with those in power over religion in Israel. And he will soon be delivered from that trial to another trial where he stands before the power of the world of that day. And that's the power of Rome. But what you also see in the trial of Jesus is a movement that narrows the focus from this, from this larger movement in Israel down to a solitary person. You see, we've come from Jesus and crowds. And as we go through the trial, there's fewer and fewer people on Jesus' side. And finally, Jesus stands very much alone. That also is a sub-theme. Another prominent theme we got started with last week, with our focus on the anointing of Jesus by a woman. Because there is a theme where women become more prominent in Jesus' story. And we will follow that storyline as well. It's not so much that the women haven't been there. But in a sense, the women have been embedded there, but it is the men, chiefly Jesus' 12 disciples, his inner circle, who abandon him in the midst of the fear around his trial. And what that leaves, it's like erosion. And what it leaves is we finally can actually see some of the women who have been with Jesus all along because a number of them remain, even to the very end. Well, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26 begins with the chief priests and the elders of the people assembling in the palace of the high priest. And it is there that the high priest is named Caiaphas. And there they scheme to arrest Jesus and ultimately to kill him. So by the time we get to this part of the story in chapter 26, here's what's transpired. We are leaping over quite a bit of territory. Judas has agreed to betray Jesus to them. Jesus has had his last supper with his disciples. Jesus has predicted Peter's denial. We'll get to that next week. We've seen Jesus in his prayer and agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. We have witnessed Jesus' arrest. And now we see the trial, which turns out, as I mentioned, to be two trials, religious and Roman. Well, how do we relate to Caiaphas? What is our connection that might lead us to consider our own convictions. Caiaphas is a lot closer to us than we might realize. 
And some of it shows up for those of us who attend churches like ours that might be called Presbyterian. Yes, this is a Presbyterian church. For those of you on YouTube, you might have just happened upon this place. We are North Creek Presbyterian Church, and we are quite proud of that. Uh, and, and Presbyterian has to do with how we govern the church. Uh, some, some people aren't aware of that. It's actually very common for people not to be aware of that. But the Greek word for elder, being led by elders, is, is presbyter. And so Presbyterian means we are governed by elders. So if you read this text, especially the first few verses that set up the trial, if you read it in Greek, it's almost like you're Presbyterian. Because there's Presbyterian lingo here. In fact, let's start with the council that is named and that we know of as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a general term for council, and it is what the Jerusalem council was called. It had jurisdiction in civil and religious matters and could meet as a court, but they had no ultimate power over life and death, over taxes for instance, or military action, that was all held by the Romans. So in the Greek, the Sanhedrin is really the Synedrion. The Synedrion. Okay, let's soften that word a little bit and go to the root. It is the Synod. Presbyterians have a Synod. Many Christian bodies do. This is how we govern. For us, we are in, currently, the Synod of Alaska Northwest. That is a level of our church governance, the Synod. That is all that the Sanhedrin really is. It's the religious Synod that has duly appointed authority over certain matters. Now, there's more. Matthew describes the scribes, and the elders, presbyteroi, they are there, Presbyterians, the elders. In Luke twenty two sixty six, Luke refers to the Sanhedrin as the assembly of the elders of the people. And it's called, in Greek, presbyterion. Does that sound familiar? I'm bringing up that connection so that the Sanhedrin, the Synod, and the elders of the people, the Presbyterians, will draw us, knowing that that is the essence of who these folks were, that that would bring us closer. That there wouldn't be such a distance between us and Caiaphas, but that we can recognize that some of the authority that was given to Caiaphas as the high priest and as the chief uh, member of the Sanhedrin, the synod, was duly appointed authority within God's people. Now, what do we say about Caiaphas himself? Well, we found out from Josephus, a Jewish historian that after the, uh, basically, Pontius Pilate's predecessor, Valerius Gratus, removed a high priest named Annas from office and then appointed a number of his family as inheritors of that post. 
And then there was a Joseph surnamed Caiaphas. And he served for 18 years, which outlasted Pontius Pilate, actually. The longest reigning high priest during this era of Roman rule. I'm going to offer a sense, before I get to some questions that invite us to ponder, that's really where we're going with these meditations, these sermons. It's not so much, you know, kind of an inspirational marching orders at the end of the sermon, but more questions to consider, to take our reflections deeper, because we've encountered the convictions in Jesus' trial. I want to bring up righteous indignation. Because that's what is on display in this text from Matthew. And certainly in all of the accounts of the four Gospels of Jesus' religious trial. The trial before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. Indignation is the feeling of shock and anger when you have the sense that something is unjust or unfair or just not right. You have an outraged sense of justice or morality. Now, some of you are familiar that there, there are lines in our society in which we tend to use our, our hands as a, as a way of describing the divisions, the different factions. We have the left and the right. The right and the left. Now, I'm going to offer this, this observation that my sense is that most of what we know in our society about these various perspectives is through publicized or reported statements of moral outrage. Publicized or reported statements of moral outrage rather than disciplined, thoughtful consideration of philosophical differences. Because moral means this, concerned with principles of right and wrong behavior or concepts of goodness or badness in human character. And those who step outside what is correct often hear about it. And sometimes the tone starts to sound a lot like the tone in the trial of Jesus. I mean, have you been in one of these conversations slash moral outrage fests, it's, it's not hard to run into those or even find ourselves moving conversations in that direction. Oftentimes, there is a resentment that there is even another side to the question, right? That's kind of where the outrage comes. Like, how could there be people who believe differently from what I believe? Think about what that must have felt like to Caiaphas when this Jesus movement was starting to burn like wildfire in Israel. Now, the reason why I bring up the left and right is that, yes, it characterizes our society, and I believe, yes, it characterized the membership of the Sanhedrin. There were those who we might in retrospect, consider progressive or more liberal. And they were known as Sadducees. Sadducees were pro-Hellenization, meaning 
the Greek way of life. They were pro-Roman, actually. They got along very well with the Romans. They did not believe in an antiquated idea of life beyond death. The Pharisees often might be seen as those who were more conservative. They had a scribe base, meaning they weren't the clergy of the day. They had very popular uh, ideas. And actually, because it had its focus, its, its root in the society, not like the Sadducees, which were kind of their power base was the temple. Uh, Pharisees, it was the synagogue. And one of the reasons why Jesus had to say so much about Pharisees is likely because where did his movement come from? The synagogue. It was more of a popular movement. So people might think, hey, Jesus is another Pharisee. Hold the phone. Maybe not. In a sense, in this trial, there was left and there was right. And then there was Jesus. And they didn't know what to do with him. Or rather, they did. So how might we relate to Caiaphas? Among many ways, here are three possibilities. The first two have to do with relating to Caiaphas on a human level. And this is really important uh, in our Christian reading of the gospel narratives around the trial and the death of Jesus. And this, this goes for all of the sermons that will come. Is that I think it's important for us to transcend the villain-hero dichotomy. In the history of the Christian church, there have been times when, when Caiaphas and the Jews are looked at as the enemy... And then the result is that you kind of get one sermon out of that, right? What's the message? Well, the Jews killed Jesus. But that's not what the gospel texts are there to show us. One of uh, uh, an influential Roman Catholic scholar, Ray Brown, a biblical scholar, who wrote the the kind of the, the quintessential treatment of Jesus' passion narratives called The Death of the Messiah... Um, he mentions that, that the Romans and the Jews alike, they bear responsibility. But theologically, the old question of guilt, we know, those of us who understand Presbyterian teachings, is that we all share in the guilt of Jesus' death. So it's important that we put ourselves in Caiaphas' place, especially as religious people. One way of looking at Caiaphas, I offer, is through the lens of fear and the obsessions that follow. It's really based on the backstory that we have with Caiaphas, that this overarching concern led to a plot and an arrest, and it began way before this moment. It's been brewing. It's been broiling. In the face of a broad range of concerns, think about if you were charged with the overseeing of all of the religious and civil life of God's people in that day, this one thing is sticking with you. This one person is sticking with you like a a bee in your bonnet. We have many expressions for that. And that's what's happening here. In the face of something that could threaten the status quo, 
Caiaphas is operating out of fear. And there's evidently a refusal to engage in dialogue that seeks to understand. Now, we have a counter-narrative in the Gospels. And I believe that counter-narrative to Caiaphas is the person of Nicodemus. Probably had kind of a similar upbringing, a similar mode, and yet Nicodemus seeks out Jesus to understand. Think about the application to our lives of seeking to understand rather than giving in to the obsessions that come from being ruled by our fears. The second is through the lens of leadership. Because really what's going on here is is Caiaphas is in charge. He's duly appointed. He, He has been given authority He's been given a job by God. Based on his role, we we understand, we look at his leadership, and we realize that, that part of it is just the challenge, the difficulty of being in a position of leadership where there aren't many easy answers. How do you decide between something that is new or emergent, whether that's going to be healthy or negative for the church? or for our lives, or for our families. But what we see here, right alongside the true or legitimate leadership that Caiaphas has, is something that is false. And here in the Greek, Caiaphas is seeking false evidence or false testimony. In the Greek, this Greek text is so full of Greek words that you know. It's wonderful. If I had to teach a class on Greek, I'd probably start in the passion narratives because it's pseudo-martyria. Martyr, right? Which is the word for witness. And it's false. Pseudo. Caiaphas is tempted toward the pseudo rather than remaining with the truth. He's seeking out false testimony, not seeking out true testimony. He's faced with choices. And like Caiaphas, we all end up in that place where we have before us two roads. Let us consider Caiaphas as we make our choice. And then finally, we consider and relate to Caiaphas on a Christian level, as a Christ follower. And so we see where Jesus is in the midst of this testimony. And we see Caiaphas's ultimate question in verse 63 of chapter 26. The high priest said to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Everything's been stripped away. All the crowds, all the miracles, all the arguments about what is appropriate to do at this particular time, not appropriate, the Sermon on the Mount, all of those things are boiled down to Jesus standing before a person he needs to give account to about the thing that matters the most. Is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God? 
Caiaphas is the one. And the many who came after him, the one to whom testimony about the nature of Jesus must be given, and the one who determines the cost of that testimony. This certainly was the experience of the early church. Those Christian communities in which the gospel accounts were taken from oral tradition and written down into the normal Greek language of the day. They knew what it was like to stand and give testimony just as Jesus did. And so we consider the convictions of Caiaphas and how our own convictions might be shaped and formed by our consideration of his, even as we recognize the one at the center of it all, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Loving God, we lift up to you our hearts, our souls, our minds, all that we are, all that we hold, all that we care about, all that we witness, our very life stories we bring to you. We bring to you in a spirit of gratitude, thanking you for creating our lives and for placing us in human community, into family, into relationship with you. We thank you that that you have come to be with us in and through Jesus, your son. We thank you for the gift of your spirit who brings all of the benefits the benefits that you want to pour out upon your creation brings all of those to us, including a life beyond this life. But thank you, Lord, for, for giving us that life in the here and now, an eternal life, abundant life, lived in community with fellow followers of Christ in and through the church. We pray for your witness, the witness to you and your love to salvation through Christ in the church throughout the world. And especially, Lord, we pray for this world, for places where there is great suffering and there are well-founded fears lived day and night. Especially we lift up the Ukraine today. We pray for peace. We pray for your intervention among and amid the powers of this world. We pray for your church, our sisters and brothers in Christ who are in Ukraine and in Russia. We pray that you would empower their witness where the cost is high. We pray for our sisters and brothers in Christ 
who worship in the tongues of Ukraine and Russia, even here in Snohomish County. Draw us nearer to them in communion with you. Lord, we lift up those who are are challenged by, by suffering, those who need healing. We lift up Julie Taylor to you this morning. We lift up Mary Wilmot to you. Lord, there are names that are on our minds, our hearts this morning. We lift them up to you for your healing touch. God, be with those who are struggling to make ends meet. Be with those who are in the the comparatively lowest places, the places of least power and influence, so that you might lift them up. Give us the eyes to see, the heart convictions, that we might see you inviting us to join you in that work. We give you all glory and praise, Almighty God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And pray this in his name. Amen.